0: Um, today, as I said, this is kind of somewhat of our Christmas service. So, Christmas is the day after tomorrow. And so, is that right? Or is, um, okay, I lose track of these things. I'm in a whirlwind right now. So, anyways, um, I thought today, let's just focus in on the, the birth of our Lord. So, you'll notice on your notes, it is Christ is born. So, this is somewhat of a, a traditional message. And uh, this is glorious, guys. What a glorious subject, topic to consider when God took on flesh and became man. When God stepped into humanity, what we oftentimes refer to as the incarnation, and that is to say that God himself took on flesh, God in the flesh, God incarnate. And this is a a glorious mystery to us. And our minds cannot fully comprehend the depth of this mystery or the riches of it. But from what we can understand, it's glorious. And so that's what I wanted to look at today. And so we're going to do a little bit of a chronological study. We're going to go into Matthew and Luke, back into Matthew and back into Luke. And we just kind of recompiled the story of The events leading up to Christ's birth and then the events immediately after. It's not all of it, but it's just some of the major uh, texts and these are, are all very familiar stories to us all. If you have been a Christian for any length of time, if you've read the Gospels, perhaps you've grown up in the church and you've heard these stories over and over. And I'm just praying that God would speak to our hearts afresh as we just sit and consider the story of Christ coming to earth for, to save His people. For the sins of the world, He came to die. And I hope that the Lord will stir us up afresh as we consider this. That it won't just be something that we've heard a million times and that we gloss over, but that we would remember this is why this time of the year we celebrate ultimately. This is what it's all about. It's His presence that is the gift. We, we get so caught up with presence, right? That's what children often think and Our present is His presence. Amen? Amen. And so let me pray for us and then we'll dig in. Heavenly Father, we love You so much and we thank You for this wonderful reality that we as Your church live in and that we celebrate regularly as we consider that our Lord has come. God with us. Emmanuel. You came and You dwelt among Your people. and, uh, And Jesus, You are in heaven at the right hand of the Father. You've sent Your Holy Spirit to to lead us and to guide us, to teach us, to sanctify us. But we look forward to that day when You return again in glory. And that once again, You will dwell amongst Your people. And so I pray that here and now, as we consider these Scriptures, that You would encourage our hearts, that You would take us deeper, Lord, that You would uh, help our understanding of You, that these things would refresh our hearts And that You would be glorified. That You would be worshipped. Because this is a time of the year in particular that we set aside to worship You and to consider all of these things. And we get so easily distracted, Lord. So easily distracted. And so I pray that You would use this time to draw our hearts and our attention back to You. And that You would be honored. That You would receive glory as we meditate, as we consider these wonderful things in Your Word. So we thank You now in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke. We're going to start there. Um, Luke chapter 1. But before we get into that, I just wanted to read a couple of Scriptures to you regarding this idea of the Incarnation. Regarding this idea that God has come and dwelt amongst His people. So in John chapter 1, classic passage. John is speaking of the Word of God, and here we know he's talking about Jesus, and he refers to Jesus as the divine Logos. That's the Greek uh, for the the Word, the Word. All right. So here he says, "In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made." And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus Christ, who has existed from all of eternity past, is the second person of the Trinity. He is the divine Word of God. And He has dwelt with God in perfect triune unity. And now the Word has come. He has come to dwell among His people. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus, though He dwelt in heavenly glory, He didn't consider that something to to grasp. He didn't cling to that. He was willing to let that go, and He emptied Himself, and He took the form of a servant. He came to this earth born of a virgin. He became a man. He grew up, and He was obedient to the Father all the way to the point of death. He died on the cross, and He rose again from the grave, and now He's exalted to the right hand of God forevermore. And one day every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess. Amen? It's important for us to consider that because for some people, Jesus is still in the manger. Some people see the the nativity and they think He's sweet little baby Jesus, meek and mild. You know, for some people, He's still hanging on that cross. You talk about Jesus, that's immediately what pops into their mind, a crucifix, and He's still hanging there. But the reality is He's not in a manger. He's not on a cross. He certainly is not in the grave. He has risen. And He is at the right hand of the Father to be glorified forevermore. And that's what we're celebrating today. Yes, our Lord came, but He did so much more than that. Amen? And so I pray that this just stirs our affections for God. So, Luke chapter 1, God's plan is revealed to Mary. And so Gabriel is going to introduce to her this marvelous plan of God. And then the next text we'll look at God's plan is revealed to Joseph. And then we're going to actually see the account of Christ being born. And then the announcement to the shepherds. And then finally, the wise men who come from the east. So those are the five texts that we're going to be looking at. I'm going to move pretty quickly, guys. It's a lot to cover, so I won't spend too much time, particularly in the, in the beginning of this message here. So, uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. So here we are in the sixth month. This most likely is a reference to uh, John the Baptist. His, uh, his mother Elizabeth is six months pregnant. The story just went from that to here. So six months from the, the previous verse. says, Gabriel came. This is fascinating. I won't spend much time on it, but Gabriel is one of the highest ranking angels we see in the Bible. We see him in the Old Testament hundreds of years earlier. And here we are in the New Testament. He pops up again. He's one of the few angels mentioned by name. Michael would be one. Lucifer of old. And... Uh, Gabriel seems to be somewhat of a, a messenger of God. And so he shows up and he speaks to Mary, the Virgin Mary. She's betrothed to a, a man named Joseph. We'll talk more about that in the next text. I don't want to expound too much on that right now. But Gabriel is full of joy. you know, And he comes in and he says, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But she was troubled at this, and understandably so. She didn't know what to make of it. She was kind of shocked. She didn't understand what manner of greeting this was. And so now Gabriel is going to kind of launch off into this prophecy. So verse 30, Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of His kingdom there will be no end. So I find this interesting. He said, you have found favor with God. See, Mary, godly and as humble as she may have been, this is still all God's grace. Any, any, any good thing that we receive from the Lord, any time God would use us, it's all His grace. It's all His favor. And such is the case here. God. You have found grace in God's sight. His favor is on you. And she, she is told she's going to have a son. And it's important to consider how they describe Jesus even before He comes. Even before He comes, it's very clear why He will come and who He is and, and who He will be. And it's, it's good for us to, to consider that. So His name will be called Jesus, which means Jehovah is salvation. God is salvation. And isn't that the case? God is our salvation. He was the one who came and secured salvation for us because we could not do it for ourselves. Praise God for that. He shall be great. He is the Son of the Highest. So we know He's not just some ordinary man, some regular person who rises to prominence. He is the Son of the Living God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the Word who has existed from eternity past, who steps into humanity. And it says, He will have the throne of David, and He will be over the house of Jacob. Of His kingdom there will be no end. This is messianic language. She's being told that He is the Messiah. He is the Christ of old. You understand that Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. And that is to say, He is the the foretold One. He is the One that God has promised from the Old Testament. He is the chosen, anointed One who will come and fulfill all that God said He would and He would ultimately redeem man back to God. And so Mary is being told that she is giving birth to the Messiah, to the Christ. So moving on, Let's look at Mary's reaction. Verse 34, Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? That's very important. okay? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth your relative has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So Mary is quite puzzled. Understandably so. She's troubled. She's puzzled. She doesn't understand. She said, How can this be? I haven't known a man. She's a virgin. And that's very important. We have to realize this is a miraculous birth. This would be an actual miracle. We use that language very loosely, and I'm going to talk about that here in just a few minutes. Oftentimes, we'll see something happen, and we'll say, man, that was a miracle. Well, a miracle is when God defies the laws of of nature, and He does something. There is absolutely no explanation for it. This would be a legitimate miracle, okay? And there are people who would try to do away with the notion of Christ being virgin born. And it is absolutely critical that we believe that. Uh, and I'm going to get a little theological with you guys at this point. We do believe that the Bible clearly teaches that we are born into this world as sinners. We are born separated from God because of our sin nature that has been handed down to us all the way from Adam and Eve. They were created perfectly and they, they experienced communion and close fellowship with God, but when they chose to sin, they were separated from God. And sin, that has been passed down from generation to generation. It is a curse and it is our nature. And so by our very nature, we sin. Okay, We sin because that's who we are. That's what we are from birth. And we are separated from God in that state. So in order for Jesus to to be perfectly sinless and to not be born with a sin nature, He was born of a virgin without an earthly father. So He's outside of that sin cycle. You understand? That's very important for us. He had to be born of a, of a woman. He had to be physically born so that He could truly be a representative on our behalf. So that He could actually live in our place and die in our stead. But he could not be sinful at all. He could not sin. He did not sin. He was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. And that is a doctrine known as the impeccability of Christ. For our theology students in here, that is, not, that is to say that not only was it possible for Jesus to be sinless, it was impossible for Him to sin. He could not, as God and so it's a mystery for us to understand how that can be because he most certainly was tempted and he was crushed under the weight of trial and temptation, uh, so on and so forth, but he overcame. He remained victorious over sin and death. And so he was born of a virgin. That's very important that we understand that. The Bible clearly teaches it. It's truth. So. Gabriel refers to Elizabeth. She says, look, I'm a virgin. How can I give birth to a child? He said, well, look at Elizabeth in her old age. She's already six months pregnant. You see, with God, all things are possible. Isn't that glorious? There's nothing that is beyond the reach of our God. There's nothing in your life that is impossible for Him. Whatever you may be going through right now, Whatever you may be struggling with, whatever you may be afraid of, whatever you may be overwhelmed by, crushed by even, it is not beyond the reach of our God to reach down and to carry you, to love you, to protect you, to provide for you. Nothing is too big for our God. With God, all things are possible. So Mary, in humility, she submitted herself to the Word of God. She said, let it be to your maid servant. Let it be according to your word. And you know, it's interesting, guys, because this is going to cost Mary. And this will cost her. She's going to have somewhat of a reputation for this, we believe, as you kind of consider some of the scriptures. And so that kind of leads us to uh, God's plan revealed to Joseph. So if you would turn your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Okay, so this has already been revealed to Mary. And now uh, Joseph kind of enters in. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make a public example of her, was minded to put her away secretly. Okay, so Mary is betrothed to Joseph at this point, just a little bit of uh detail here. they uh, they have are in a legally binding agreement at this point. They're not married the 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 marriage ceremony has not taken place, but they are legally married. The betrothal contract period is usually about a year. And so this has all been set in a stone and to break that, it's legally binding. And so if she breaks that, it is like committing adultery and all the the full weight and ramifications of the law uh, would be upon her for that. And that's really fascinating because in the the Jewish culture, the way the, the wedding ceremony would so often work is, is that they enter into the betrothal contract. And so the bride, it's her time to kind of prepare herself make herself ready for the the wedding ceremony and the the groom goes away and he prepares a place for her and so often they would build on to their house the father's house they would add on and that family would just continue to grow nobody knew the time when the wedding would actually happen except the father of the groom and so at at the appointed time he would come to his son and say son go and receive your bride. And so even the groom would come at a time when the bride didn't know and he would come with with the uh the groomsmen and it, the celebration would begin. The procession to come and receive the bride and then they would begin the procession back to the to the house that had been prepared and they would have the the ceremony, the feast, all this would go on for sometimes even weeks. And so um, that is absolutely picturesque of of us and our relationship with god for we all know the text in john 14 when jesus said let not your hearts be troubled you believe in god believe also in me he said that i'm going away to prepare a place for you in my father's house there are many rooms and if i go i will come back and i will bring you to myself so that where i am you will be also and so you see the parallels there so that's actually where they are at at this point in time they are in that betrothal contract period. And now she's been found to be with child. And so Joseph, uh, being a just man, he's thinking about these things and he's considering how he can put her away secretly. I really appreciate that about Joseph. That speaks volumes to me. Uh, he could have had her stoned. He could have made a public spectacle out of her in this, but he didn't. He, he considered how could, how could he secretly divorce her and put her away so not to make a public example out of her or to shame her publicly. I think that's pretty neat. And so, verse 20 here, "...but while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins." So, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So, Joseph is instructed to proceed with the marriage. He receives this vision, he has some sort of a dream. The angel of the Lord comes to him and explains that this is a supernatural happening, this is a miraculous event. That which is in her womb is of the Holy Spirit and He should go ahead and marry her. The angel says that this child has come to save people from their sins. That's important that we understand that. There are a lot of reasons out there people will give you why Jesus came. But ultimately, Jesus came to save us. You understand? To save us from the wrath of God Almighty. To save us from the sin weight that was over us, the condemnation and the wrath of God which was on us, we've been saved from that. But then to break the power of sin, though we are in this flesh and though we struggle, sometimes more than other times, nonetheless, sin has been broken. We are no longer slaves to it. Now we belong to God. We are led by the Spirit. We are under grace. And that is what Christ came to do. So we have eternal life, life forevermore, and glory in the presence of God, but we have God here and now. We have a relationship with Him. And we have the ability to serve Him, to love Him, to love His people, and to be used by God here and now for His kingdom's sake. Isn't that amazing? And Jesus came to secure that for us. He came that we would be saved from our sin. And Matthew here is quoting Isaiah 7.14 when he said that this happened to fulfill what the prophet said, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is to say that God would be with us. And truly, God came and dwelt amongst His people. And even now, God is with us. Amen? Amen. Alright, so, Joseph responded in obedience. Verse 24, then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So Joseph walked by faith and obedience. You know, uh, he he could have woken up from that dream and thought, "Man, I don't know what to make of that." You know, I I had a a, a buddy of mine sent me a text a couple of days ago with a, a really crazy dream in it. And he didn't know if perhaps there was um, some significance to it. And so he explained it to me. And I'm trying to think, I wonder what that could mean, if it means anything. And he said, oh, just so you know, I did eat chicken strips before I went to sleep. And so I was like, okay, well, maybe that's what it is. I don't know. And Joseph could have been like, you know, I ate, some, I ate all that lamb before I went to sleep. And I don't know, maybe it was just a crazy dream but you know, he he took a step of faith. He walked in obedience. He did what the angel told him to do. And uh, so here it says that Mary remained a virgin until after she gave birth to Jesus. As crazy as that sounds, Joseph did not know her intimately. Now it's important to note that jo- uh, Joseph and Mary did later have children. They had several children. We're told that in Matthew chapter thirteen, uh, verses fifty-five through fifty-six the people are saying of Jesus, this is not the carpenter's son, Joseph's son who we know and his brothers and sisters are here with us. And the Bible names off uh, several of Jesus' brothers and the fact that he had sisters. So I say that to say this, the Bible does not teach the perpetual virginity of Mary. That's something that um, Roman Catholicism teaches that that, uh, Mary is the mother of God incarnate and that she... Uh, remained a virgin all of her life and they really seek to deify her to to make her um, like god and the bible just simply doesn't does not teach that so i just want to make note of that all right now if you would flip with me to luke chapter 2 we're going to look at the first seven verses of luke uh, chapter 2 as we consider the actual birth of christ so Gabriel came and told Mary that this was to to be. And then the angel of the Lord, it's possibly Gabriel, don't know, came to Joseph and made it very clear to him what was happening here and that he was to proceed and that God was doing something miraculous. And so now we're going to consider uh, it comes to pass. So verse 1, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. in the next uh, passage, uh, but it was prophesied in the Old Testament that the Christ was going to be born in Bethlehem. And so that had to happen according to God's Word. But Mary and Joseph were up in Galilee, the northernmost uh, part of Israel at that time. And so it happened that there was a census that took place that forced them to have to go to Bethlehem to be counted amongst the people. And so it was at that time that Christ was born in Bethlehem. Isn't that convenient, right? And so I would say this is God's providence. And I want to talk about what that means. We oftentimes refer to the sovereign hand of God or God's providence. And oftentimes, we'll use God's providence and the word miracle interchangeably. But they are kind of two different things. So as I mentioned earlier, a miracle would be when the Red Sea split and the uh, children of Israel walked through on, on dry ground. That is truly a miracle. Okay? And just a little side note, you know, people try to discredit that and say... I heard a story of a college professor who said it wasn't actually the Red Sea. It was a sea known as the, the Reed Sea, which was nearby. And it was actually just ankle-deep water. So it didn't part at all. And a student stood up and said, that's an even greater miracle. And they said, how so? They said, well, God managed to drown the entire Egyptian army in ankle-deep water. You see, so it's silly, and people do what they can to try to undo the miracles of God, but you just can't, okay? That's a miracle. Oftentimes, God works things together in such a way, He just lines up our circumstances in such a way that something just works out perfectly. It falls into place. And we might say, that's a miracle, but no, that's that's God's sovereignty. When we talk about Romans 8.28, that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love Him, those who are called according to His purpose. And we, as Christians, I'm sure we all have these stories in our life when we look back and think, man, that worked out just perfectly, that this certain situation just had to happen, happened to happen at the right time, and that is God's providence. God providentially works that out, and He works things together. God is in control. He is behind the scenes, and He is working things together for His purpose, for our good, And so I I think this is a prime example of that. And this is one of the sweetest things about being a Christian is knowing that our God is working in our lives providentially. We have that hope. And so often you never know it until after the fact. You look back and say, now I can see how God was working all these things together for that to work out just right in His timing. And so often I will remind people and even think to myself, how, I wonder, how is God working providentially in my life right now? And so often we, we don't know. But we will look back a year from today and think what God was doing at that time. So it's cool just to remind yourselves, remind ourselves that, that God is at work. He's doing things. And we don't even necessarily know what it is, but we know He's up to something. And so it's kind of a cool thing to consider. So we see God's providence here. you know, And the Pharisees later had accused Jesus. They said that He's disqualified. This guy is not, the, Pharise, uh, not the, the Christ because the Bible says that the Christ would come from Bethlehem and He's a Galilean. They didn't know that Christ was actually born in Bethlehem. That was their ignorance. But that's actually very significant. Alright, so verse 6, still in Luke 2. We're going to look at the humble birth of Christ. So it was that while they were there the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. There was no room for them in the inn. So there was no room for Jesus there. It's kind of funny. Um, I was debating on whether I was even going to go here or not. Sometimes people take the Scriptures and they can really make it say something that true as it may be, that's not really what what it's saying. And so I heard a guy, I was a new believer, and he was preaching this text. And he said, you know, there was no room for Jesus in the end. Friend, is there room in your heart for Jesus? And so I thought, hey, that's good. I like that. That'll preach. But that's not really what this is saying. But it's funny how, how people can can do that. So... I was debating. I thought I might just do that, but I couldn't do it. So anyways, all right. Nonetheless, they were there. The population was swelling at this time. There was nowhere for Jesus to be born. And so he was basically born in in a barn. He was born in a stall. He was born in a manger. It would have been dirty, dirty. I mean, this was a terrible situation. I mean, I can't think. I mean, this is is pretty awful if you consider labor. For those of you who are familiar with the process, you've been there, ladies. Imagine doing that in a nasty, stinky barn. Uh, oh, that's that's awful. But that was where our Lord, God of all of heaven and earth, stepped into humanity and was born like that. That amazes me. And then he lived a life of relative obscurity. Nobody knew who he was. Nobody really knew where he was at. He was just a normal kid that was living in subjection to his earthly parents and obedience. And then ultimately, he revealed himself to his people. The people that he came to save rejected him. He was outright rejected. At the end of his life, he was betrayed and abandoned by those who had been closest to him. And then ultimately, He died the most horrific death on on the cross. Just humiliated, shamed, beaten, tortured, mocked, betrayed, rejected. And that is the King. He wasn't born in a palace. He didn't live a life of ease and comfort. He didn't die on a nice soft bed surrounded by His loved ones. He was crushed to death. He was humiliated and mocked. And he died upon the cross. that is the humble king. Is that amazing? You know, when our God talks about the least shall be the greatest, that is so counterintuitive. You know we think one way about glory and greatness and how, how a king ought to be. Uh, but God did that totally differently. totally It was not the way that we see it. and I, I find comfort in that oftentimes the The Bible is man, it is true it is real it is not something that was fabricated by man because if we came up with this stuff don't you think we would have done it a little differently and and god's ways are not our ways and it is absolutely amazing so this is the story of our lord of our christ he lived a life of humility and servitude like that and we're told to have that same mind in us remember i opened up in philippians he said have the same mind among yourselves which was in christ And He dwelt from all of eternity past in glory, but He didn't cling to that. He set that aside for us. And He came to this earth and He went through that for us. And so now we're to do the same for others. It's not about us and building our kingdom, but it's about us laying down our lives as the Lord laid down His life and serving other people. Right? We're to follow in the steps of our humble King. Bible says that if we humble ourselves, He will exalt us in due time. So it's our job to seek humility. It's our job to lay our lives down. It's our lives to seek His will, not our own. It's our job to build His kingdom, not our own. Right? We're not to live for comfort and security and, and all of those things, safety. We're to, to live for the Lord and lay our lives down and, and serve His purposes and trust Him for the rest. Alright, so kind of following on that, Um, the announcement is now going to be made to the shepherds. So if you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. Now there were in that same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. So everything that I just said about the Lord's coming and His His death and all of that, the humility of it all, really is very consistent with this. It's really odd that God would reveal all of this to the first people and that they would be shepherds. Shepherds were in many ways they were the the lowest of the society. They were kind of the outcasts. They were always on the outskirts of town. They were totally separate and isolated from the people, they were just there with their animals. They were nobody. They weren't right in the mix. They weren't the 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 elders of the community. They weren't in the gate. They weren't in the courts. They weren't in the, the temple of the palace or, or any of that. They were way out in the middle of nowhere, totally isolated and separated from all the people just there alone with their animals. So often they were very uneducated, very uh you know, just your rough neck kind of people. And this is who God chose to reveal the glories of the Incarnation to first. That is amazing. And so, the angel comes and they're terrified, which is so often the case. And then the the angels tell them, do not be afraid, for I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So this is the Gospel. There, the Gospel message is being heralded here. It's good news. Guys, that's what the Gospel is. That's what the word Gospel means. Good news. Because we all know there was bad news. And that is we are separated from God, dead in our trespass and sin. But the good news is God in His grace and mercy made a way for us to be saved from our sin, as I already mentioned. That is good news. And they said we have come with good news, glad tidings of great joy, not just to some people, To all people, not just to the Jews, but to the non-Jews, everyone all around the world, for all times, good news, Christ the Savior has come, our Lord. And so Jesus, the Anointed One, the Chosen One, the Messiah of old, has come to save us from God's wrath, to save us from sin, and He is Lord. And that's important, guys. We have to understand that. Many people want a Savior, but they don't want a Lord. You know, I came from the South, the Bible Belt. That is so true. Culturally, the majority of people are very quick to tell you that they are Christians. It's very different than out here. You know, we, we really are the minority and the majority of people will very quickly tell you they don't believe that stuff, they don't want to hear that stuff. But in the South, Southeast, it's very cultural. Most people will tell you, yeah, I'm a Christian. They, they believe that, even if they really don't. It's just part of the culture. It's, it's uh, There's like some sort of credibility that, that comes with that it's very strange I worked part-time at the courthouse um, before I moved here and so the lady that I worked for was a good friend and she thought that it was very important that people know that I'm a pastor it gets me credibility with the judges and the police and I thought that was so weird and so they started calling me preacher and so that was my name hey preacher and I, I didn't like that it was kind of weird and I, I said I started telling people you keep calling me that I'm gonna start passing a collection plate around all right and so, um, it's just not, you know, that, that way. And so, um, that's the gospel message. And they came to bring this good news. And I, I heard a pastor say one time, you know, is, is your gospel message good news? Because whatever you're saying about Christ, what do you, whatever it is you have to share with people, if it's not good news, it's not the gospel. And it was really interesting to consider that. And he started giving all these examples of how we, how we present the Gospel and present Christ. And if you stop short, that's not good news. That's not the Gospel, man. They came with good news. The Lord is good. And so that was the whole point I was making there is that Christ is the Lord. And so it doesn't stop there. We go all the way past... Uh, believing on Christ and being saved and, and restored and all of that, but now we have a Lord that we love and that we serve and that we, we bow the knee to. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Christ is the Lord. You've got to go all the way. So is the Lord Is He your Lord? Maybe you have put your trust in Christ. Maybe you have confessed Him, but are you walking with Him? Are you following Him? Are you serving Him? Are you obeying Him? Are you loving Him? Is He your Lord? That was the message that they brought. Okay, so moving on, verse 13. Heavenly praise. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them in heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. So, The angels are praising God for this glorious happening. The incarnation has happened. Christ is born. God has stepped into humanity and taken on flesh. And this revelation comes to these angels and all of a sudden there's a multitude of heavenly hosts worshiping and praising God. That's an incredible event. You know, all of human history has looked forward to this and then all of human history has looked back to this event. All of history hinges on this. When Christ came, you know, you think about the very idea of before Christ and A.D., which means it's Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. And so, even our dates hinge on this. It leads up to it and points back to it. It's glorious. It's incredible. Just a little side note here, for what it's worth. You know, it doesn't say that the angels are singing, and the Bible doesn't actually say that angels sing. And so we got this idea that angels are always singing all the time everywhere. And a lot of people say that about this, but it doesn't. It just says that they were praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill towards men. Just a little side note. Alright, so verse 16. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the manger. Now when they had seen Him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. So the shepherds are pumped up, man. They're stoked. They're excited They come, they find the the babe as the sign was given to them wrapped in swaddling cloths. They're telling everyone about it. They're spreading the Word. But Mary, she just kept it in her heart. She pondered this. That's pretty amazing to me. There are all these events that happened here in the beginning that she just didn't quite know what to make of it all. And she just kind of held it in. She pondered it in her heart. And then throughout Jesus' life, I'm sure there were so many things that happened that she looked back to all of these events. And she... She remembered these things. She hid them in her heart. I suppose there's a lesson in that for us. There's a time when we ought to keep things to ourselves. Some people love to, to go and tell it. There's a time when God has, has spoken something to you. You ought to keep it in your heart. And then I suppose that uh, you know there were times where people really doubted Jesus. His brothers didn't believe Him. And they thought he was crazy. And there was a time, I believe it's in Mark, where it it said that his mother and his brothers actually came to get him because they thought he was beside himself, out of his mind. And people didn't believe Jesus, but I'm sure that she had this in her heart. She remembers the promise. She remembers what was told to her. She remembered the wonderful things that she saw. And I suppose that's important for us as Christians. Sometimes we have to hide God's promise in our heart. We have to remember the glorious things that God has done thus far and remember that He shall be faithful hitherto and beyond. Amen? And so um, there's just that little lesson there. I think that's good. All right. So moving on, we're going to close with this text Uh, Matthew chapter 2. And I'll make it really quick. It is time to wrap up. So we'll move quickly. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. So at this point, we're no longer at the, the manger. This is probably several months later. It could be even longer than that. People tend to associate this with the manger scene. And oftentimes you'll see the three wise men in the manger. There were probably more than three of them. Probably there was a whole caravan of people who came. They associate free with the three gifts that were brought. The gold, frankincense, and, and myrrh. Probably a lot more than three men. It says that they come from the east. There's a quote in your notes here. I'll read it from Clark. He's a commentator. He says, Being from the east, they would have been among the Jews who were exiled from Judah and Israel centuries before. That many Jews were mixed with this people, there is little doubt. And that these eastern magi, they they were philosophers or astrologers. They were scribes of some sort. Whatever else they were or might have been originally of that class, there's room to believe. It says, These knowing the promise of the Messiah were now probably like other believing Jews waiting for the consolation of Israel. So over to the east, when the Jews were taken to Babylon, they were taking it, taken into captivity, uh, the people there really collected the, the writings of the Jews as well. And, and this could even point back to Daniel. And he, he rose to prominence amongst these people and, and really made known the, the Word of God there and then. So there were people that stayed. And I imagine in a lot of ways, the, the prophecies, the traditions of the Jews took hold. And they were looking for the Christ to come there, even from the, from the east. And so um, they said that we've seen a star. And so what, what does that mean? Well, there's one scripture in particular in Numbers 24. I think I have it in your notes here. There's a prophecy. Numbers 24, 17, it says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. It may possibly be a reference to that. That verse there, that could be what they were looking for. Alright, so here verse 3 says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. So that's the verse that I referenced earlier. That's Micah 5.6. That was why they were certain that when the Christ came, he would come from Bethlehem. And so when Herod receives this word from the, the men from the east, he goes to the, the scribes and, and the people and says, what is this? And they, they reference that verse. This is where the Christ is to be born. Now Herod said that he wanted basically to worship the Christ too. And so he wanted to know where this kid was going to be born. Find him and bring back word. But we know better than that. Herod was a very paranoid guy. I have some quotes here in your notes. Uh, Carson In his last year's suffering and illness that compounded his paranoia, that is, um, Herod, he turned to cruelty and in fits of rage and jealousy killed his close associates. He killed much of his family, his children, his wives, and uh, Barclay here. Augustus, the Roman emperor, had said bitterly that it was safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. And that was kind of a play on words in the Greek. The words are very similar, pig and son. And so he was saying, you were safer off being one of, one of Herod's animals than one of his family members because he would probably have you killed. And so obviously that's what he's thinking here. He wants to find this threat and, and kill it, right? And so here, verse 9, "...when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was." When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented uh, presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So we'll kind of close with that Scripture and just a couple more thoughts here. I just want to consider the great lengths that these men came just to honor the Lord. They they came to worship. And they made that very clear. They said, we have come here. We've come from a far... A journey to worship the Lord where is he at that was their heart's desire they came to honor the Lord and when they found the Lord they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy and I you know I think about this personally I want to be marked by that first and foremost you can say many things about me but I want to be known as a worshiper of God and that I have found the Lord and I rejoice with exceeding great joy and and uh, that it's very important for me to honor and worship the Lord such was the case for these men they fell down and they worshiped Jesus. They didn't worship Mary. They didn't worship the mother. They worshiped Jesus. And I just want to consider these three gifts. I think that these are very significant, very even prophetic. So they brought gold. I mean, these would be strange gifts for a small child. They brought gold. And I would say this is gold for the King of Kings, it represents His Majesty. They brought myrrh, uh, excuse me, frankincense. This would be like an incense, something that would be used in priestly duties as they offer up worship to the Lord, a sweet-smelling aroma. And so this is frankincense for the great high priest. And then lastly, they brought myrrh, which was an embalming, uh, some sort of an embalming agent they would use uh, when, uh, for a dead body when they would wrap it and use spices and, and different uh, things of that sort. Myrrh for the one who came to die for the sins of the world so I just want to close with this thought. They came to worship the Lord. They came from a great distance to honor Him. They rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. They brought these gifts. What gift will we bring to the King? You know, what gift will we give Him? This is a season when we talk a lot about gifts. We talk about what we're going to receive. We talk about the gift that God has been to us. The gift that God has given us in His Son. The gift of His presence. But what gift have we brought to the Lord. In Romans 12.1, it says that we are to lay down our lives as a living sacrifice to the Lord, which is our reasonable service. Right? It's, it's what we ought to do. Give our lives. May our lives be a gift to the Lord. May He find that accepting. May He find that pleasing. Amen? And we'll close with that. We're going to close with a song. Laura, Joe, if you guys would come up. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we love You and we thank You for the gift that You gave when You came and You died in our place. Heavenly Father, thank You that You gave Your Son. Thank You that You paid the highest price. Thank You that You gave that gift. Thank You for this time of the year when we celebrate these things very intentionally, very deliberately. We consider this a fresh And I pray that we would remember exactly what we're doing and why. And that You would stir us up afresh. And that You would draw us closer to Yourself. And I pray, Lord, that we would consider above all, how can we give ourselves to You? Because, Lord, we have You. The question is, how much of us do You have? How much of ourselves have we given over to You, Lord? So I pray that this Christmas season that we would... Give it all, Lord, that we would give all of our lives to You as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, pleasing in Your sight. So we thank You and we worship You. In Jesus' name, Amen.